This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, um, and this episode is a bit different uh, to normal episodes. Obviously, everybody at the moment is aware of the extraordinary times we're living in and the kind of unprecedented crisis that's facing us all as a result of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. Um, I, like many other people, am here working from home um, for the foreseeable future uh, and also partially homeschooling so a shout out to any parents who find themselves in a similar situation and are are dealing with those challenges. I'm obviously quite used to working from home but it turns out working from home is one thing when everybody else goes out to work. Uh, It's another thing when the next door neighbours turn out to have a bouncy castle that they like to put up next door at lunchtimes but we'll gloss over that for now. certainly presents some challenges in terms of recording podcast audio. But anyway what what I want to do with uh, a couple of episodes that I'm going to put out concurrently here is try and give an opportunity for people from across the sector to have uh, their opportunity to give insights and, and highlights what they're doing in response to, to this pandemic crisis and what they're hearing from organisations on the ground about the challenges and also why where they've seen reasons uh, for hope about the ability of civil society to kind of weather this this very large short-term storm and potentially even you know kind of emerge uh, stronger in the future. So um, without further ado, I'll go into to some of those. I, I'm putting three uh, interviews in, in each podcast um, and I'll also be releasing them all as kind of individual audio files um, and so you'll be able to access each of those individually. Um, there are some variations, as you'd imagine, in the sound quality. I've had to record across a number of different platforms. Everybody's learning to love Zoom, uh, certainly over the last couple of weeks. Um, and also, you know, people are in sort of uh, different situations working from home, children around, so there's background noise and that kind of thing. I myself have had to retreat as a, um, a result of the aforementioned Bouncy Castle. Um, but we've all been kind of making do uh, and I've had some really interesting conversations with people, which, you know, I hope you'll get a lot out of. Um, so without further ado, let's go into those. I will do a little uh, bit of intro before each just to tell you who I'm talking to. Um, but other than that, I'll try and stay out of the way as much as possible. Um, and then I will be back at the end of the podcast just with a bit of normal housekeeping and tidying up. my first conversation, I was joined by a returning guest, uh, Fran Perrin from the Indigo Trust, who was joined by her husband, Will, who's also one of the founders and trustees, uh, to talk about their recently announced plans to significantly increase their spending in response to the current coronavirus pandemic. Hi, well, thanks ever so much for finding some uh, some time to, to just have a, have a brief chat. Um, I guess the, the first place to start is... Um, for for both of you just to say a little bit about how the uh, COVID-19 pandemic is sort of affecting you and and your funding so far and kind of what you've been doing in response because I know you've already made some some really interesting announcements about uh, kind of ramping up your efforts. Yes so like everybody we've been scrambling to respond to this crisis as it emerges 
and wanted to be able to do as much as we could to help. So uh, we realized that we had to get money out of the door as quickly as possible to make a difference, but didn't want to fall into the trap of philanthropists trying to reinvent the wheel or come up with ideas that were too clever. So we decided to look for organizations that had an existing uh, foot on the front line distribution center that would be straightforward. We didn't try and jury rig them into our existing strategies. Um, and Will could perhaps say a little bit about why we thought uh, it was so important to react quickly. Well, we saw in, um, I think it was the week commencing the 9th of March, just following global news um, that we were heading into a once in a lifetime national emergency. Um, and we started to talk between ourselves about what an appropriate philanthropic response might be during the course of that week. Our usual funding routes, tech projects, small catalytic grants, mainly overseas, the kind of things Indigo does week in, week out, clearly weren't going to make a difference in a crisis at all. And the country was heading into an Italy-style acute period with a sort of essentially generation-defining national suffering. And we could see that a couple of weeks ago, reading between the lines and watching global media as well as British media to see what our trajectory was likely to be. And so um, we were very keen to um, get resources to people who could use them before the country went up what you might call the viral curve. Um, there's no point waiting until after we could see that having happened um, to make grants to organizations that needed to respond to national suffering at that point. We needed to use a little bit of foresight to get in uh, ahead of that um, in a way that was um, completely, it was orthogonal to our, our normal funding strategy. So we essentially, um, we use a fairly straightforward strategic framework um, based on the work we've done over the years with the philanthropy workshop, with new philanthropy capital and others as we think about strategic philanthropy to say, um, you know, what is an appropriate response to uh, an immediate national emergency? And um, we sat down with a team, a very small executive team in Indigo, and we started to work through options. Fran. So uh, quickly, the, the ideas that came up were the Trussell Trust, um, the national food bank charity, where you have a perfect storm that demand starts to rise very quickly because people are being made unemployed or their existing support networks drop away, but also that the um, food that is donated to the food banks drops away because volunteers aren't able to get out and about. Uh, so we felt that this was an, uh, a really straightforward way to help as many people as possible directly. Trussell were incredibly responsive, um, really showed us that they could use the money quickly and directly. Um, and we were delighted to be able to give them one million pounds directly for that effort. We also wanted to work in a coordinated way so that others who are better placed than us could uh, make the decisions on where the money should be allocated. So we gave one million pound to the National Emergency Fund. Uh, this was an existing organization set up after various London uh, crises like Grenfell and terrorist attacks and is now a national scheme. Uh, the coronavirus fund was just being announced that day and will distribute funds through uh, UK community foundations which exist in every community across the country 
and are ideally placed to know local needs and to already be working with local charities on the ground. Um, we really encourage everybody to donate to that fund uh, because the money will get out everywhere to organisations that can use it straight away. And civil society is going to be really hit by this as demand rises, uh, but donations may drop. Finally, we wanted to do something in our own backyard. So we've given half a million directly to the Oxford Community Foundation, who we've worked with before and are really great at helping local charities. We were great believers and practitioners, we, we like to think, of strategic philanthropy. But strategies are only relevant to the context in which they sit. And when the context profoundly and fundamentally changes, you have to change your strategy. And so we essentially put our existing strategy on hold and went into a new and very rapid, brutal strategic process to deliver funding as fast as possible before the need arose. Um, but even in doing so, we still try to retain a strategic oversight so that uh, for instance, if we wanted to, one of the things about COVID-19 is that suffering and death will be incident across the whole country more or less evenly, except for the most remote fringes. We can see that from the models. So how do we as, as philanthropists based in the southeast of England uh, put resources into something that can alleviate suffering on the ground in, in, in Barnsley? Um, we can't do that in, in a regular grant making process where we send our executive out to do research um, and they report back to us and then we make a grant. By far the most sensible thing to do now is to give money into, into uh, funding vehicles that are set up to do exactly that. And the National Emergency Fund cascading down to community foundations is, is the right strategic route to take now. It's quick and it's low risk and it should appeal to philanthropists, I think, who are looking to, and foundations who are looking to change their grant making now. And we also granted Trussell because, again, it operates at a strategic national level. If we put money into Trussell, um, the money is distributed across the country into areas of needs in a way we couldn't replicate as, as a grant-making foundation. And do you have any sense of um, the, the extent to which the, the, the fact that you've given uh, that amount of money and also the way in which you've done it, as you say, sort of very sharply kind of shifting away from your standard strategic um, a kind of approach and thinking about how to get money out even when that's very different to your normal grant making has had an effect on other grant makers funders or philanthropists and are they sort of saying actually we're looking at what you're doing and, and we'd like to follow suit we've uh it's too early to tell really i think in terms of influencing other philanthropists we're certainly keen to get out our thoughts and to share publicly what we're doing not because we want praise but because we think funders need to act as quickly as possible so whether they choose to donate this way or to other charities they need to act much more quickly than we're normally set up to do and we do want them to think strategically uh, both will and i have been uh, very influenced by the philanthropy workshop and npc new philanthropy capital in how to be strategic donors um, i'd recommend people read the new npc advice to donors that they published, as well as specifically how donors can respond to the coronavirus. Uh, we've seen several other foundations make major donations to uh, Trussell and the National Emergency Fund, uh, but it's still a drop in the water compared to the overall needs. So I'd ask any foundations listening to, to strongly consider it. What we have heard is foundation staff have seen what we've done and are taking that information to their board and to their trustees 
to encourage them to act rapidly. So I hope trustees really listen to that advice. I think there is a broader strategic piece here at a meta level for philanthropy as a whole that fits in with some of the writing you do, Rodri, maybe, as you to judge it, I suppose, which is we're at a generation-defining national emergency. And if now is not a time to expend accumulated philanthropic resources, when is? The public will be quite um, uh, entitled to ask after this crisis when we take, look back at what happened. Um, what were the philanthropists philanthropy doing with their money to alleviate national suffering during this acute emergency. And I know that philanthropists will come round to that point of view, but we would stress the need for very rapid action. Um, and that means in some foundations, it might well mean invoking emergency procedures. Uh, those that make grants on an annual cycle might want to interrupt that cycle. Uh, those who have, um, uh, those, those who have uh, um, uh, other cyclical arrangements for getting money out of the door might want to pause those. This is not, the time we're entering into now is not one for business as usual. Um, as the, even the government, heaven help us, has said, we will do whatever it takes. And we think that philanthropists need to do whatever it takes now to alleviate national suffering. Yeah, no, I mean, I'd absolutely agree on that, that need for a, for a sense of urgency. And I think it's been encouraging uh, from, from many parts of the sector to have, to have seen a kind of recognition of that. Um, but it's still, you know, I think that even even more need for urgency is there. Um, I mean, in terms of the model that you're using, obviously you're saying, you know, I like very much what you're saying about recognising that the, the best thing to do is to uh, relinquish quite a large degree of control over the grant making and just give it to those organisations best placed on the ground to distribute it quickly. Um, but do you have kind of uh, plans for any other resources that you will retain control over and what you're thinking about doing with those in terms of some of the kind of medium and longer term potential implications? I think uh, absolutely we have further plans. What we wanted to do was get the first tranche of money out quickly as an emergency response, but then we're already planning for a second and third stage. Uh, what we know is that charities that deliver services will be badly hit and some will go under. We want to look at uh, a second stage when we're a little bit further through this experience, when we'll have more information about what need is, uh, where government has left gaps and where we can fill it. And then the third stage, which is recovery, and hopefully we get to that as soon as possible. But then it will be about how do we support civil society to get back on its feet uh, when charities are still needed to help people with the aftermath, how can we best direct resources there? I think we'll still at every stage be looking to work through existing organizations, um, but there may be more scope at that point to, um, to support the existing charities we know and make sure that they're financially sustainable. Uh, so we, we are doing a lot of thinking about how to do that next. And, and in terms of sort of more broadly than what you yourselves are doing, I mean, what, what based on your uh, kind of knowledge and insight of the challenges that the organisations you work with and as you, others you know are facing on the ground right now, do you think that, you know, government at a central or local level, other funders or, or the charity sector itself needs to be doing? What are the actions they need to be taking to, to sort of ensure that they are in a position to, to remain resilient and, and move into that medium and longer term? I think there are several things. Um, I'd recommend everyone have a look at Carl Wilding at NCBO uh, and others who are working on a coordinated 
um, approach to government in terms of, they call it everyday counts, how do you help the charitable sector uh, and making sure that charity workers are considered key workers and where a massive financial stimulus might need to take place. We're also encouraging uh, donors and government to publish their grants data to 360 Giving. This is something we've been working on for a long time, getting grant makers uh, to share what they're doing so we can better coordinate. And in a crisis, you desperately need information for coordination. Uh, we'd really love to see government as it makes big grants to support services and charities sharing that data so that philanthropists know where to fill in the gaps people occasionally uh, say to us you know what is the point of all this data about grant making and we, we we're about to see that extremely vividly um the government is about to make a colossal scheme of grants to small businesses grants not loans they've been quite ex explicit about that um and we, it looks like it's probable, but we can't be certain yet, that they will also make grants to charities in order to stop the charitable sector folding as its income collapses. Um, what is the point of that then of the government making grants without telling the rest of the grant making sector to whom it is granted and vice versa? How do we know when we're not doubling up on funding people as we all move forward in an immense hurry? to um, keep organizations afloat where that's appropriate or to work through them to alleviate suffering. This is a, a vivid worked example of why we need data in near real time about grant making. And the government, for reasons that remain completely inexplicable to me, has failed to publish its grants data at a granular grant by grant level over the last three or four years. And it's uh, been very, very disappointing. We're about to write to John Whittingdale to, um, uh, today to um, ask him if he can expedite this process. I've already written to Michael Gove, but obviously in this time of crisis, um, they will have a lot to do. And this is something the government could have done years ago, but for, for unfathomable reasons, they've always chosen not to publish their grants data, unlike the USA and Canada, who just publish it as a matter as open data as a matter of course. If I could just add, I think one thing I'd like all funders to do is look at the London Funders Pledge, which has been published recently, which is about funders straight away changing the way that they operate with grantees. So, for example, the grants that we've made are all completely unrestricted, and we've said we don't need any measurement, evaluation or reporting. We want the charities to concentrate on the immediate need, not about writing up reports for donors, and we want to trust them on how to spend the money. The London Funders Pledge has some very specific actions that foundations can take uh, to make sure that we're not adding to the burden of charities. Absolutely. And I think that London London Funders Pledge, you know, they pulled together very quickly and it's been heartening to see how many organisations have, have joined that and signed up. Um, I mean, we, we've talked a lot, you know, understandably about the challenges that the, the sector faces and I guess society more broadly. Um, you've also mentioned some some sort of causes for optimism. Um, what have you seen so far that most gives you cause for hope that the sector is going to weather this storm and, and hopefully end up in even better shape, perhaps, than, than it was previously? No, I think there's the, the obvious thing, as Roger, you may know, I, I spent many years running uh, a, a business that specialised in hyperlocal news and information around the country. We helped people set up local information sources that they owned and ran independent of the traditional media. And we can see an awful lot of that going on. Um, local uh, 
social groups, whether it's uh, Facebook or uh, WhatsApp or Nextdoor or um, pre-existing websites run by hyperlocal media, they're really demonstrating the value of lo ultra-local media that's controlled and run something by people, something that the charity sector has always massively underestimated um, uh, over the last 10 years. So I think that's very good. We can see an explosion in self-organized grassroots volunteering uh, as people uh, arrange to look after each other. Um, but there, there will be, and we have to be clear about this, you know, there's going to be a negative downside from this, not just at a social level, but um, there will be a substantial hard impact on voluntary sector organizations. Um, and some of them aren't going to exist because they won't be able to make it through this crisis. Many of them who are run by uh, all the volunteers might have had some tragic consequences that uh, might uh, might come to pass. So there will be profound change in the sector, but we have to be optimistic that a new form of communitarian action, action on the ground is, is, is arising. And the challenge then for the sector is how do we keep that rolling um, so that uh, this crisis won't be over, click your fingers and it finishes. It will be a long, slow escape from, from, from this uh, hideous COVID-19. And we need to work out how we can uh, capture that volunteering and keep it and continue it for the public good. I think for me, uh, the the thing that gives me optimism in these dark times is that we have an extraordinary civil society in the UK already, um, and I hope we can support it so that we keep as much of it as possible during this time. Yeah, absolutely, and I I think you know on, on both of those counts, I think there are reasons for. For optimism, I'd agree. I mean, also we need to be very clear that, that there is, you know, reason to to be concerned and a lot of work to do. But certainly, as you know, as someone who's kind of interested where possible in attempting to take a longer view of civil society, it's it's incredible to be living through a period where it really feels that some quite fundamental changes might be taking place, even if it's very difficult to foresee which of those will stick and, and where they may end up. But um, you know, it's have to sort of try and, and and look above the day-to-day -day every once in a while just to just try and keep track of that stuff um listen is it absolutely great to to get both of you on the podcast is there anything else that, that we haven't said so far that you'd you'd like to flag up to people i think there's just one thing which is about the radically quick transformation that's happening in digital world at the moment as we all shift to working at home where possible um there are some encouraging things about that where foundations or some traditional organizations who've never seen the need for uh, flexibility around working from home or video conference calls um, are suddenly having to speed up the way they transform digitally. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people skilling up on this um, and I think longer term I hope that change continues even when we are free to be back at work as normal. I think it's an area where we can support charities where they've had to deliver services face-to-face -face, and face-to-face -face will always be better but if it's not possible how can we help support charities to switch to an online or phone-based system where, where applicable. Um, as we slightly get over the first curve of the emergency I'd love to see foundations supporting charities to make that switch but not trying to reinvent the wheel not trying to create entirely new products to do that but using simple things that already exist and i'd point a lot of people to the uk uh, online centers which are part of the good things foundation which can help let people get the digital skills they need very quickly how to video chat 
how to search for information um, for users who aren't used to that. And it's interesting, I think, uh, that Good Things has in the last year uh, has seen an influx of money from private foundations um, as, as leading foundation grant makers have suddenly realized that um, people's ability to do smart things online is fundamental to modern life, regardless of that person's index of social deprivation or their educational background or social class or whatever. Um, it's becoming a necessary uh, foundation for modern life. And um, I do hope, and, and I have to take an interest, I'm a trustee of, of good things, that we, we're able to attract more funds um, as we go forward. Absolutely. And I think it'll be very interesting to see how much of that kind of enforced change at the moment through necessity sticks after the event and results in sort of genuine transformation so i'll certainly watch that space um just want to say thank you uh, again both of you for, for taking the time to come on and you know look forward to to seeing how all of your your efforts kind of play out over the the coming months and certainly you know it'd be good to to catch up maybe a bit further down the line to to see how things have progressed of course we'd like to and, and thank you rodri and remember wash your hands <laughs> <laughs> I, yes, I, I hear my daughter singing happy birthday all the time, so it's hard to forget. <laughs> <laughs>And for my next conversation, I was joined by Rob Williamson, the Chief Executive of the Community Foundation for Tyne and Weir in Northumberland, which is the largest community foundation in the UK, uh, to talk about the work they're doing in response to the pandemic. Okay, Rob. Um, so, yeah, I guess the, the first question really is just, you know, the obvious one to ask how the COVID-19 pandemic um, is affecting you guys so far and also all of the organisations that you work with. Um, well, I think... Probably I'll, I'll, I'll start with the, the second bit of that, which is the organisations we work with, because I think for small local charities and community organisations, um, it, it, it's clearly a very, very worrying time. There's you know lots of uncertainty for people. And as we all know, in all our work, it's, it's been a kind of daily developing, changing situation. Um, but, you know, we, we became conscious of things very quickly, for example, how reliant food banks are on older people as their volunteers. So very, very quickly last week, we were speaking to uh, organisations like food banks that were kind of saying we're not sure we're going to be able to, to keep going because um, all our volunteers are going to have to be at home. Um, and obviously, the, you know, the, the world's changed since then. But I think there was a, there was a kind of very quick impact on on small charities and and uh, you know those those very small hyper local organisations are the ones that are really really good at, um, at volunteers. And of course, we know that lots of volunteers are older people. So I think that that, that that's the thing that we've been very conscious of. Um, but on the other hand, I think we're we're also really uh, impressed by how many of the organizations we support are are you know really quickly we're thinking about what can we do you know what let you know let's not get too obsessed with what we can't do but what can we do um you know switching to doing things by telephone online um and i just think that you know we've seen a really amazing response um from the local sector um and and that's been been really really great to see um, and I and you know what one of the things that we have um, uh, emphasized as uh, as a funder is just trying to stay in touch with organizations by phone 
Um, and uh, and I, you know, I can say a bit more about this, but we launched our own fund in response um, and, you know, trying to speak to grantees just to kind of say, you know, what, what are you able to do? How is this affecting you? And, and unsurprisingly, you know, what a lot of people are saying is it's just really lovely when, and, and helpful when a funder reaches out and says, how are things going? And, you know, some of those organisations, we might be able to help some of them, we might not be able to, but just being in touch with them, I think, has been has been really helpful. Um, so that's the, the kind of sense from the sector. I think the sense from the Community Foundation is, you know, we've got some big long term worries, as, as any endowed funder would have about what, what the impact on us is long term. But but we're not worrying about that right now. We're worrying about how we can keep going, how we can continue being open to applications, how we can best support the sector um, and, and how also, you know, we're an employer as much as anybody else, you know, how we can keep our own staff morale and, and operations going and, and so far so good and, and what specific responses we can do uh, in the light of the, the pandemic, which, um, which I'm sure we can, we can talk about a bit more about what we're doing. But yeah, that, that's the kind of initial um, uh, kind of craziness of the, the past couple of weeks, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And I, w- I want to come on to, to talk about the fund uh, in, in a moment. Um, I just wanted to ask before that, I mean, it seems like community foundations have been quite prominent so far in, in terms of the discussion about the response. And it's kind of understandable because you guys are kind of rooted in, in local communities and it feels like that's a lot of where the response is. What, what sort of um, role are you taking at the moment in terms of coordinating effort among other people as well as, as just kind of getting money out to, to grantee organisations? Um, well, I think we are uh, already um, in touch with kind of local resilience forums and, and the, you know, the kind of existing infrastructure that's, that's around to respond to emergencies in communities. But I think one of the thing that, things that's become apparent really rapidly is... Um, you know, this isn't this isn't like a, a, a normal or an imagined kind of philanthropic disaster response, because normally what you see in a kind of disaster or emergency response situation is is a kind of group of people in category A who are the people who are directly affected. And then the vast majority of the population in category B who are not directly affected and who can be called upon to to respond and and in this situation and possibly uniquely in modern times we're all affected so things like um charitable appeals for support have a very different nuance in this context i think where you've got to be very careful what you're asking for when people are thinking everybody's thinking about their own livelihoods i think uh so there are challenges on that side there are challenges on the other side in terms of there's a whole swathe of new community level responses um, you know, all the Facebook groups that people will have seen springing up, um, et cetera, et cetera, to do stuff uh, and how, what, you know, what's our role in relation to them and, and local authorities becoming involved in the coordination of volunteering. And it's so fast moving that it's almost like when, you know, we, we think on one day, well, we, we're pretty clear what our role is. Um, within 24 hours, you're kind of asking yourself again. So, so you know, amazing community uh, and organisational response, but navigating what our role as community foundations in that is 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 quite challenging. Um, we, initially, at least at my community foundation, um, we've been uh, trying to prioritise our attention on our existing grantees, 
uh, and particularly those ones that are providing a response uh, to, to vulnerable beneficiaries and how we can get money out to them um, in the kind of initial phase. Um, but, you know, already starting to think to ourselves, well, what is our role in respect of all these other um, newer community responses and, and, and how might we uh, play a role there and, and where would that fit alongside statutory bodies, etc. So, uh, so any day you ask me that question, I might have a slightly different answer, I think, at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's true for all of us. Um, and just yeah, in terms of the fund that you already mentioned, maybe you could just say a little bit about kind of what that is and what the the focus is and what the the aim is in terms of you know where you're looking to kind of bring bring money in and and how you're looking to direct it. Yeah, so we um, we uh, last week um, made the decision to uh, take some of our money, which uh, which is kind of discretionary money. Uh, as some of your listeners will know that um, a lot of what community foundations manager are donor advised funds that are restricted in various ways to particular things. But but we have some um, you know discretionary and unrestricted funds um, from various sources. So we've taken uh, a couple of hundred grand of, of that money um, and put that into a, a coronavirus response and recovery fund. And we've had uh, a contribution from um, Newcastle Building Society, who are long-standing supporters of ours, um, who have put another hundred thousand pounds in, and we are both um, encouraging our existing uh, donors and fund holders either to kind of um, uh, move funds that they have with us already into that pot, so where they've, you know, were perhaps. You know, there was £20,000 sitting in a donor advised fund for expenditure in the next 12 months. We're, to, we're saying to donors, would you like to put that into the coronavirus um, pot at this point? And we're having a fantastic response to that. Lots of our, our active fund holders are doing that. But we've also, um, you know, done the traditional thing of set up a, a just giving page so that the wider public can contribute. As I, as I said earlier, we're not pushing that massively because we think it's, it's not normal circumstances for an appeal. So we're, we're kind of saying to people, you know, if you if you feel like you want to contribute, you, you can do that. And we're, we're seeing a steady stream of, of kind of public donations coming in, but it's not really our emphasis. Our emphasis is on um, partners, um, other trusts and foundations and our existing donors. Um, so that's in terms of the money in. In terms of the money out, um, we're hoping this week um, to be able to, uh, agree a kind of first tranche hundred grand out uh, to organizations across Tynemore and Northumberland working with older people initially um, and then we'll be looking at some other vulnerable groups but but we're also really clear I think um, and I don't quite have all the answers to how we do this yet but but a big part of our focus um, with our fund is going to be recovery and that will be about a wider group of organisations, potentially not just those working with those most vulnerable uh, to the outbreak, but but thinking about all of that stuff that we're seeing going on in the sector about organisations losing fundraising income, uh, losing uh, earned income and all those kind of things and thinking, you know, how do we make sure that as far as possible, the, the local sector is in a good state when we come out of this to, to kind of pick up and carry on and that that's going to be one of our our kind of things that we're thinking in the next few weeks about how we do that and I think one of the things that's changed for me about the fund is 
uh, if we'd talked a, a week or so ago, I'd have, I'd have seen those two things as, as kind of consecutive phases. So there would have been a recovery phase. Um, sorry, there would have been a response phase to help immediate beneficiaries. And then there would have been a recovery phase to, to help the sector get back on its feet. But actually, I think those two things are going to have to run alongside because if we don't run them alongside, we're going to lose organisations um, who aren't going to be there uh, when things go back to normal. Um, so we, we kind of need to think about both things at once, which complicates it a bit. But but that's kind of where we're where we're at at the moment. Yeah, and that certainly echoes things that I've, I've heard from talking to other funders. Um, on on that note of kind of needing to think about the medium and longer term at the same time as the immediate short term, apart from what you're doing there at the Community Foundation, um, what do you think are the, the kind of most important things that government at a central or local level, other funders or, or charities themselves need to be doing at the moment to kind of to, to make sure that they are around for that medium and longer term? Well, I think uh, most what you know what i've seen is uh, a real sense of the kind of philanthropic field stepping up and doing what you would hope it would do in these circumstances which is going you know what we need to be flexible um we need to think about um uh, the kind of civil society as a whole and what state that's in uh, and and what it looks like now and what it looks like in the future so you know lots and lots of stuff that that um lots of people will be familiar with about uh, funders being really flexible about um, the terms of existing grants. Uh, it also comes down to grants that are in the system. You know, we were talking as a team this morning about applications that that we're looking at now that were kind of submitted a couple of weeks ago that look, you know, kind of bizarre in the kind of light of day that we're in now. So, you know, going back to those applicants and saying, is is this actually something you can do or do you need something different and all of that kind of hands-on stuff. And I think whatever kind of organisation you are that is financing the sector, whether that be uh, a, a trust or foundation or a public body or indeed an individual donor, then then the maximum flexibility is, is, is the kind of key thing at the moment. Um, I think inevitably there is a kind of explosion of things going on and everybody wants to to get help out immediately and I think one of the challenges is is to try and be pragmatic about helping the groups that we know we can help that are making a difference and also keeping an eye on all of these emerging and changing things um, and you know and, and collaborating as much as possible without necessarily having to pool money um, but you know making sure that that funders and and, and other organizations keep in touch with each other and and make sure that what they're doing kind of aligns and and and, and complements what other people are doing um, uh, around the country um, there is obviously also a national um, appeal run by the new national emergencies trust that, that community foundations are also going to be involved in and and that's one way um, that 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 other funders and big businesses can can contribute um, to things, but there you know there are lo- so many things going on, and it's just about being pragmatic and kind of picking something and trying to do that well, rather than panicking and about trying to solve everything. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And just just as a final thought, you know, apart from uh, all of the challenges of which there are many at the moment, I mean, what have you seen in this sort of short term period? from within the sort of charity sector and civil society that gives you hope and, and optimism about the sector's ability to kind of weather this storm? 
Um, well, I think, like I said, I think we've, you know, we've we've been in a, a period where there's been quite a lot of criticism of philanthropy, um, and I think we're seeing why we have it um, and why it's helpful because it can move more quickly than government, and and so far at least. Um, uh, you know, while some of the government's initiatives apply as much to the charity sector as anybody else, for example, you know, the kind of furloughing of empl employer, employees, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, the emphasis has been much more on private sector support and, and immediate medical response. And, and obviously, you know, we're all aware there's lots of uh, wider challenge to government about doing something more specific for charities. And philanthropy has has filled that vacuum very quickly, I think, and, and philanthropy in its broadest sense, both in terms of financial, but also giving of time and expertise, right from a really micro community level, right up to the major trusts and foundations. And I think, you know, that that's a brilliant thing and, and exactly what you would want to see. And, and hopefully when we reflect on this, um, I hope we can, as a society go, philanthropy did its bit. Um, at every level uh, and in every kind of manifest of what philanthropy means um, and it did its very best and played the right role um, including an advocacy role for the sector um, you know there are lots of trusts and foundations are behind that um, that pressure on government to for government to do more so so it's it, it it's a really interesting kind of live you know in in, in real time playing out of um, is philanthropy doing the thing that we would want it to do in these circumstances? And I, I would say, from my perspective, broadly, yes, it is. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, I think for, you know, this definitely feels like one of those periods that once we, we get through the immediate short term, we'll be sort of sifting through the implications for quite a long time to come. Um, yeah, it just, just remains to say thanks ever so much for finding the time to to uh, come and have a chat on, on the podcast. Uh, Rob, I know you're probably incredibly busy, as are many people at the moment. Um, but I you know, wish you all the best with uh, kind of getting the money in and, and getting it out again to, to where it's needed. And hopefully we can uh, kind of catch up and maybe get you on the podcast for a longer chat about uh, sort of broader issues at some point when everything's settled down a bit. Great. It's great talking to you, Rodri. Okay, great. So uh, thanks again to all of the guests who uh, gave up time at this extremely busy uh, period uh, to come and give me some thoughts about what they're seeing and thinking about what's happening uh, out there in civil society at the moment. I hope it's been, you know, really informative for anyone listening. And certainly, you know, if you want to follow up on these things, please feel free to see me as a conduit. So drop me a line at the giving thought at cafonline.org. You know, if you're interested in finding out um, more thoughts about philanthropy and civil society more broadly, check out the giving thought pages at the CAF website. Follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis or at Philiteracy, um, where I'm also currently doing a sort of mini project trying to look at the historical angle around philanthropy and the response to epidemics, if that's of interest. Um, other than that, you know, tell people uh, about the podcast. Please do, you know, share some of the individual interviews and the key points from them because I think there's some really interesting stuff in there. You know, other than that, continue to like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it, and I will see you shortly in the next one. Okay, bye. <laughs>